0: Climate change, the scientists tell us, is an existential threat to the future of the planet. But what do we do about it? And how much time do we actually have before we're completely engulfed by rising sea levels, melting ice caps, and ever more extreme weather events, from out-of-control wildfires to floods, tsunamis, and other natural disasters. World leaders gathered in Glasgow, Scotland this month for the latest summit to address the crisis. And yet, in its waning hours, Chinese and Indian envoys watered down the final communique, removing language pledging to phase out coal production, with weaker wording promising only to phase down the fuel. What was accomplished in Glasgow, and what more needs to be done? We'll talk to two Yahoo News reporters who covered the summit, and we'll also talk about the not guilty verdict in the cable television drama known as the Kyle Rittenhouse Trial on this episode of Skullduggery.
1: I do
0: solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend Constitution of the United States. So help me God. So
2: help me God. So help me God. So help me God. So help me God.
0: So help me God. God. I'm Michael Isgoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News.
1: And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor in Chief of Yahoo News.
0: And our fellow co host, Victoria Bassetti, is traveling today, so won't be joining us but we will have uh, a number of our Yahoo colleagues weighing in before we get to the climate change discussion and what was and wasn't accomplished at uh, COP26. We did have the big news. We had a lot of big news today. The House passed the Build Back Better bill that has been the subject of intense negotiations and food fights for the last uh, six months or so. And then right after that, we got a verdict in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. We are joined now by Caitlin Dixon, who has been covering that for Yahoo. Caitlin, welcome back to Skullduggery.
3: Thank you, thanks for having me.
0: So Rittenhouse,
3: not guilty on all counts. Were you surprised? Yes and no. I think that seemed pretty pretty likely uh, by the end of the trial, Um, but then once you know the deli- the jury deliberations were went on for a few days i think that it sort of seemed like there was a better chance of of him being charged at least with you know some of the counts maybe some of the lesser the lesser charges uh being like a split verdict so yeah i think it was a little surprising given how long it took but not completely
1: you followed this trial uh all the way through so at the end of the day Why do you think the prosecution wasn't able to make its case or persuade the jury that Rittenhouse was guilty, at least on some of these charges?
3: Yeah, I think that, you know, the prosecution really tried to make the case that he, that Rittenhouse, you know, sort of put himself unnecessarily into a turbulent and dangerous situation and made it, you know, more more so, and sort of instigated the these altercations that ultimately led to him shooting three people. And I think that kind of one of their, the, the things that sort of turned against them, I think some people have said that they think several of their own witnesses, several of the prosecution's own witnesses kind of did them a disservice. And I think the one that was ended up being maybe the uh, the one that sort of worked against them the most was the testimony of Gage Grosskreutz. And I apologize if I feel like no one can pronounce his name correctly. I've heard it said several different ways, but he is the man who was shot by Rittenhouse and survived. He was shot in the bicep. And he admitted essentially on the stand that he had pointed his gun at Rittenhouse before he was shot. And so I think that that sort of, I don't know, killed the the credibility of the the prosecution in terms of making the argument that Brittenhouse was not justified. Obviously, the first two people he shot were not armed and didn't point guns at him. So I don't know that necessarily because the final person he shot was pointing a gun meant that he was justified for all three. But I think that that was like an example of how the judge or I'm sorry, how the prosecution's Witnesses sort of, you know, kind of ended up working against them a little bit. It just really, they really struggled to kind of like make that argument.
0: Caitlin, it, it wasn't just the, the the witness testimony. I I didn't follow the trial that closely. I watched, you know, some uh, segments, but I did watch the prosecutor questioning. I guess on redirect that witness. And, you know, trying to make a point or maybe, no, maybe this is when they were questioning Rittenhouse himself when he took the stand and Mm -hmm. they were trying to make the point. Well, the gun, the guy may have had a gun and it was holding in his hand, you know, pretty close to Rittenhouse, but he didn't have it cocked and ready to shoot. And, you know, I'm thinking, look, somebody's got a gun who's hostile to me and is holding it, you know, close to my face. I'm not too worried, concerned about whether he's got it, you know, cocked or not. I see a threat to my life. And that just seemed like a really strained argument that the prosecution was making. And it makes me wonder, didn't they see this coming and, you know, think through the arguments they were making and maybe they were overcharging
3: in this case, well, and I mean, yeah, and that's a good point because they did sort of, you know, try to, I don't know, get the make sure that he could still be charged for the charges. You know, um, they were they were worried about if he was unanimously found not guilty on the the most severe charge, which was, I think, intentional homicide, that he would be automatically you know, found not guilty of the rest and they wanted to make sure that the lesser charges were were still being considered because I think that they maybe realized that that intentional homicide was was going to be a really hard one to convince the jury of. Um, and then I think the other thing that really like had an impact was was Rittenhouse's testimony. You know, he he went up on the witness stand and, and spoke for himself. And I think that like everyone would probably agree that it was pretty compelling and uh, whether or not you would agree that it was reasonable what he did. Um, I think he he made it pretty clear that he felt like he, he was in danger and he was scared. Can you
0: remind us what he was doing there in the first place?
3: He lived with his mom in Antioch, Illinois, like 20 miles South, I guess, of, of Kenosha, but his dad lived in Kenosha and he had been there since the night before, I guess, staying with his dad or his sister's boyfriend who was his good friend who had bought the gun for him and I think that they saw what was happening on the news, like a lot of other people. The, the city was sort of had descended into these protests for the past two nights um after the police shooting of Jacob Blake in August of last year. And um they saw what was going on and they decided to go first downtown during the day to volunteer and clean graffiti off of like a local school that had been vandalized, and then that night, you know, decide to take their guns and go join up with other people doing the same thing downtown. What, what was going on in Kenosha? You know?
0: There were there were. I mean, yeah. I saw some of the footage and it actually looked pretty violent. I mean, there were fires. the yeah. Stores were being looted. This was not a peaceful protest.
3: I think, yeah. I mean, I, I think that it started out as that. There was, you know, there was this, this shooting of, of a, a young black man named Jacob Blake, not seven times in the back by a Kenosha police officer. And it was captured on video as many of these shootings, you know, have been. And obviously that the whole summer was sort of like filled with these types of protests around the country. And it started with, you know, I think peaceful protests that sort of descended both nights into these like kind of chaotic riots. And there was violence, there were fires, there was, you know, a lot of property damage. And um, and so this third night after this had happened two nights in a row was when Rittenhouse and and several other people from from out of town, he wasn't the only one, you know, came to Kenosha with their guns and decided they were going to help protect local businesses.
1: So, Caitlin, I mean, all of that context, that kind of backdrop, I think is was important in this case. Um, mm-hmm. but You framed it nicely in your in your piece that just went up on Yahoo News. Was Rittenhouse a good Samaritan or was he, as the prosecution called him, a chaos tourist? what were his intentions? What was his motivation? And it raises these questions about the sort of gun culture in Mm -hmm. in this country now, the sort of culture of uh, vigilanteism, And as a legal matter, all of that relates to the question of what is self-defense at the end of the day. So how did those different issues play in this case?
3: Yeah, I mean, I I think that the question of what is self-defense and who has the right to self-defense is sort of the central issue in this case, because, you know, Kyle Rittenhouse and his lawyers argued that he shot these people in self-defense. He was justified in, in firing his gun on these people who were chasing after him because he felt, you know, he was in fear of his life. And... The prosecution tried to make the argument, obviously unsuccessfully, that Kyle Rittenhouse was the one who was presenting, you know, a a danger and a risk to other people's lives and that he instigated these fights by walking around with an assault or semi-automatic, you know, AR-15 style rifle strapped to his chest. And that in itself is a provocation. And that is sort of, you know, that instigated things and that he doesn't have the right to self-defense when he's the one provoking the situation. And on top of that, the people who then tried to chase him down and stop him after he had shot one person, those were actually the people who are, you know, had the right to self-defense. They were trying to protect themselves from an active shooter. And so, you know, obviously the jury found that Kyle Rittenhouse is the one who acted in self-defense. And I think the the concern from some people that I've been talking to ahead of this about kind of the, the gun question that you raised, Dan, is... Sort of what is this? What sort of message does this send? I guess to future potential vigilantes about you know whether you can come come down to a protest with your gun and and shoot somebody if you if you want to and and I think that the concern for a lot of people was that if he was found not guilty, it basically was giving a legal defense to people who do the same thing you know who go down to a protest and provoke an altercation with with people who are. I don't know, a different opinion than them. And then ultimately,
0: shoot. Well, the problem the prosecution they, they had think they can... was starting with uh, this guy Rosenbaum, who was the first person who Rittenhouse shot and killed. Um, mm-hmm. He was a provocateur, right? I mean, he was an agitator who was participating in the violence that was sweeping through Kenosha at the time. Am I
3: correct about that? Well, he, uh, I guess, had been in a hospital up until the night of the shooting, um, so I don't think he was participating in the violence like the night before or, or anything. I think apparently, he had been released from the hospital earlier that day that he was shot. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's there's several like. Well, lay out what Rosenbaum was
0: doing. What was Rosenbaum doing there, and what was he doing in, in his interactions with Rittenhouse?
3: Right. So. Joseph Rosenbaum was was there. He was sort of like an instigator, like a shit talker. He was he was trying to it seemed like trying to start fights, trying to provoke people, saying really inflammatory things, getting in people's faces. And, you know, the prosecution acknowledged this and they showed a lot of they showed several videos of um, scenes where Joseph Rosenbaum could be seen getting in these sort of altercations with several other people who were similarly armed like rittenhouse yelling you know provocative inflammatory things getting in people's faces and the prosecution's point was nobody else saw him as a threat you know nobody else felt they needed to shoot him because they never didn't really feel like they were at risk he was obnoxious he was annoying he was like you know Trying to start something, but he wasn't actually like a, he didn't present a real danger to anybody, and so that was the argument on the prosecution side that he, it wasn't reasonable for Rittenhouse to feel he needed to shoot him because he didn't present any sort of danger. The defense's argument and, and Rittenhouse's argument was that he supposedly threatened Rittenhouse, which the prosecution noted is one of one of like the only key things that happened this night that was not captured on video by somebody but Kyle Rittenhouse claims that Joseph Rosenbaum said to him and, and another person carrying a gun like if I get you guys alone I'm gonna kill you basically and uh they argued that that was sort of enough that when Rosenbaum I guess ran after him later on in the night it was enough for him to feel threatened and shoot him
1: well the tr- the truck the verdict is in, the trial is over, but the case is going to continue to play out, um, in the, in the public court. And, uh, I think you, you said in your, you call him a lightning, uh, now it's a lightning rod in your story and, and a symbol of, uh, divergent, uh, worldviews. And, uh, I'm, I'm sure that's already playing out on Twitter.
3: It absolutely is. Yeah.
1: You're right. As, as we speak and, uh, you know, uh, one example, uh, Issakov. We've talked a lot about Matt Gates on this podcast and his problems, legal problems. Um,
3: he offered him an internship.
1: He said the other day he uh, he was he was open to offering offering Kyle Rittenhouse an internship. Oh, that's so that's wonderful. We'll we'll see if that we'll <laughs> if, see I, if, if I that were happens. Rittenhouse,
0: I'd look for some other offers before I accepted <laughs> that one. Uh, it might yeah. be yeah. longer lasting. But I got one last question for you, Caitlin, because it seemed sure. to me, you know, the one clear crime that Rittenhouse did commit is he asked somebody else to buy that gun for him. And, you know, we have a federal background uh, check law that makes it a crime to uh, use a straw buyer to buy a gun for somebody who would otherwise not be eligible to get a gun. And that's exactly what Rittenhouse did. Why wasn't he charged with that?
3: Yeah, I think that that is like kind of one of the m- most interesting things, and I think that the he was charged with it. Uh, he was charged with a misdemeanor uh, of possession of a dangerous weapon by a person under eighteen, and it was uh, ultimately dismissed. The judge agreed to dismiss it because the defense argued that he was covered by a exemption in Wisconsin law that says basically if you know you're using. A rifle, and I, I don't know the exact language, but it, it was basically a hunting exemption that pertained to his the gun. So you can you can
1: hunt people in downtown Kenosha? That that's state law, but its not doesn't mm-hmm. federal
0: law govern here? I mean, it's a federal law uh, that makes it illegal. To, um, to have
3: a straw gun purchase.
0: Yeah, to have a straw gun purchase. You know, where's the U.S. Attorney's office? Yeah,
3: at? I mean that's a good question, and maybe we'll see. He ha- has not been charged federally uh, with anything, and you know, I don't know whether he will be. But yeah, in the state, in the case of the state law, it, it was it was curiously, I think, dropped because you know it was obviously he wasn't hunting and that was sort well, of he, sort he kind
0: wasn't of a hunting game anyway movie. but uh, right
3: well,
1: well yeah. in that you know uh, there have been a, a lot of questions about the judge in this case um well yeah was,
3: that's a whole other story which is,
1: yeah but that's a, uh, listen That's a whole
3: other podcast, that's a
1: whole other <laughs> podcast. but <laughs> right. listen caitlin um thank you so much for coming on the podcast to talk to us about this case and for your coverage uh of it uh, all along uh, we we really appreciate it
3: it's my pleasure thanks for having me
0: All right, we now have with us our climate crisis dynamic duo, David Knowles and Ben Adler. Uh, They were both in Glasgow covering the uh, COP26 conference, and they're also co-hosts of Yahoo News' climate crisis podcast. David and Ben, welcome to Skullduggery.
2: Thanks for having us.
0: So uh, you guys were over there for two weeks in Glasgow watching this giant mega conference. To somebody like myself, who just tends to be skeptical about these giant international confabs and whether they can actually accomplish anything, give us your bottom lines. Did the world make any progress in COP26? David, you go first.
2: You know, I think there was progress that is made, and the problem with the climate crisis and and climate change more generally is it's such a massive, massive undertaking, such a massive problem to try and address that a lot of people get caught up in this. We didn't solve it. We didn't have the perfect solution. Whereas I think Secretary Kerry put it, you know, you you can't defeat the perfect with the good, right? I mean, you or how is that how does that phrase go you can't defeat the good with the perfect
0: don't don't make the perfect the enemy of the good that's right
2: so he's um you know his point is look we have to start addressing this one measure at a time and there was some progress there were some new commitments that were made by the nations and and the signatories of the agreement Will it be enough? Not if those commitments are not followed through on and not if we don't continue to enhance them as we go forward each and every year. So it's sort of a mixed bag. I mean, you've got to start somewhere. Transitioning global economies away from fossil fuels is no tiny problem to start out trying to fix. Let me just
0: interject there, because I have here the uh, Washington Post lead story a couple days after the conference with the headline, China ramping up use of coal Um, and uh, talking about how the Chinese Chinese, uh, coal production is now at a six-year high. And this comes at the, after the end of the conference in which both the Chinese and the Indians got together and demanded a last-minute dilution of the language that had been put in the draft for abandoning fossil fuels, changing it to phasing down fossil fuels, and how that provoked fury inside the room From people working on this, Alex Sharma, the British uh, guy who was uh, leading the talks, was beside himself demanding an explanation. So when you see that, it's really hard to have a takeaway that something meaningful was being done when, you know, two of the biggest polluters in the world, if not the biggest polluters, are essentially rejecting what the conference set out to get them to agree to. Ben?
4: I think that there's dichotomy depending on whether you look at the long-term pledges or the short-term policies. The major breakthroughs in the conference with regard to China and India were that India for the first time agreed to a net zero greenhouse gas emissions target by those, 2070. Yeah, way off in the Long
0: future. Long time from yeah. now.
4: Yeah. And China's 2060 whereas the uh, large uh, developed nations like the U.S. are 2050, or in the EU. So China and India need to move that up to avert catastrophic climate change. But they also, but it's you have to take a step back and look at where the world was in climate negotiations leading up to this, which is that India, for example, has one fortieth the GDP per capita of the United States, and it has dramatically lower greenhouse gas emissions. Per capita, so India's position was: we have 300 million people without electricity, we have hundreds of millions of people in poverty, and we're going to grow our economy and not refuse to use coal because the U.S. and and other rich countries burned up the whole car, used the whole carbon budget, and so getting them to agree to take action at all is progress. And the question is: the thing that alarms experts is that all the countries are, including the U.S. and other rich countries, are making bigger promises for further out than they are taking action right in the here and now. And so you can draw two different graphs, one where we get close to averting catastrophic climate change if everyone fulfills their promises, and one where we don't if current policies continue and current trends continue. And so this next decade is really going to be crucial in terms of two things, both our countries starting to live up to the commitments they've made? And are they making more ambitious commitments? Will India and China move those dates up? Will the US and EU increase the amount of climate finance they provide to poor countries like India? And Indonesia, for example, is another big developing country that you need to really get on board with robust climate action, and you need to to subsidize it.
1: Yeah, actually, I want to pick up on that point, Ben. But actually, before we do that, I think it would be useful if we just step back for a minute what did we achieve in Glasgow? Where did we fall seriously short? Uh, And obviously there's stuff, a lot of stuff in the middle where it's going to depend on making these commitments and actually fulfilling them. But, you know, there are certain things that did happen, right? There was a methane agreement, for example. Talk about some of the particulars. And then I have a specific question. Why don't you take that, David? And then I've got a specific question for you, Ben, picking up on the, the point about developing nations.
2: Sure. So the methane pledge was uh, signed by over 100 countries to cut methane emissions by 30% by the year 2030. That may not sound like much, but methane is a very potent greenhouse gas, much more, initially much more powerful than carbon dioxide. You can have a big impact if you even scale back methane emissions by that much. Remember that the putative goal, of the conference was to keep the threshold of 1.5 degrees centigrade of temperature rise, keep the world from not going beyond that. That was a goal that was set out in Paris, and it was sort of renewed here in Glasgow. And it remains to be seen. uh, It seems like we're getting very, very close. We've already, you know, global temperatures have risen by 1.2 degrees centigrade, Since pre industrial times. So I'm not sure that we're going to get there. We've, you know, a bunch of estimates were done and we've, you know, downgraded the uh, temperature rise when we were going into this. We, you know, people were saying 2.7 degrees was going to happen. And these little gradations from 1.5 to 2.7 that's a whole lot of extreme weather, a whole lot of misery for the planet. So it's very important that we try and keep temperatures from rising above or too far above 1.5 degrees centigrade. So yeah, there was the methane pledge. There were pledges against uh, deforestation, uh, you know, which there were some major countries involved in that, including Indonesia, which promptly the next day turned around and said, actually, we're not on board with this pledge that we just made, you know, basically 24 hours ago. So, you know, one step forward, one step back. So the Indonesians
0: have walked away from what they pledged at, at Glasgow?
2: They walked it back and they said it was unfair to their economy. Yeah.
0: So you got China, India, and Indonesia not going along with what the rest of the world
1: wants them to do. Let me just pick up on that because it goes to what, Ben, you were talking about vis-a-vis developing nations. So they are suffering the greatest impact of, uh, of climate change and at the same time are the least responsible for it for the you know the warming of the planet. So what are the wealthy nations doing to address that that gap? Those countries want compensation for the damage that climate change has already done, right? Right. This is one of the central tensions in the whole climate negotiation process and
4: the shortcomings in what rich countries produced there are one of the reasons that these developing countries didn't I mean China's a bit of its own Situation. But countries like India, Indonesia, you know, didn't make bolder commitments in Glasgow in part because they feel that the uh, rich countries aren't producing their fair share of climate finance. Now, back in 2009, in order to get developing nations to sign on at all to the Copenhagen Accords, developed countries said we will mobilize $100 billion per year in finance by 2020 for climate action. Mobilize is not the same as donate. It can mean private sector or quasi-governmental organizations like the U.S. um, Export-Import Bank providing loans for things like a solar panel factory in a developing country. In other words, climate finance is to assist developing countries in growing their economy without using fossil fuels and adapting to the changes, the, the bad effects of climate change that are disproportionately harming countries in the global South, Africa, South Asia, Southeast Asia, and Latin America. The problem is that the rich countries haven't fulfilled their hundred billion dollar pledge yet. They're somewhere in the order of 80 billion a year now. It looks like they're going to hit 100 billion by around 2023. Biden quadrupled. US commitments to climate finance in the run-up to Glasgow. But if you look at the size of the US economy, uh, the amount of emissions the US produces and has produced cumulatively, it's really lagging behind its counterparts in Europe in terms of providing its fair share of climate finance. In other words, Scandinavian countries might be like the only ones hitting their fair share, and Germany and France are coming closer than the US is. So, But it's very hard because Congress would have to appropriate more money, right? And Republicans in Congress and and probably even some moderate Democrats might not want to spend billions on climate finance. But in order to get those more ambitious commitments from developing countries, where a lot of the future emissions growth is going to come from, you really need to incentivize them, give them the tools. And the other thing that's becoming an issue is now there's so much climate change damage already happening that now developing countries are saying, not just we need money for adaptation and for clean energy economic growth, but we need money for loss and damage, which is put that way, could be thought of as like a, like a typical tort law. Like if you pollute your neighbor's lawn, then you have to pay them back, loss and damage. A framing that would be a harder pill for American, Americans to swallow politically would be calling it climate reparations, which it also could be called. Either way, the point is there are people in Bangladesh losing their land, literally losing their land, losing their homes, their property, their livelihoods. And someone hopefully will pay for it. And but it gets very complicated when you get into the questions of how? How do you decide? Is it coming from the national governments? Is it coming from the fossil fuel corporations? And so the grudging tentative agreement that was reached was they finally, for the first time, put in the phrase loss and damage in the Glasgow Climate Pact. But one of the things that developing countries were disappointed by was that the US and the EU blocked the creation of a fund specifically to distribute that money for loss and damage. And I think you're going to see in the years ahead that they're going to have to come forward with that funding to get the kinds of policies from a country like India that, that, that is needed to actually stay below one and a half degrees Celsius of warming.
0: You know, one of the problems that some people have with this is that the threat seems so enormous and our ability to actually change the trajectory seems you know, incredibly difficult. So I'll give you an example. A year ago or a little more than a year ago during the height of COVID, I assumed that people like me, millions of Americans, were no longer driving downtown to their offices because we were all working from home, we weren't taking airplane flights, we weren't getting together with relatives on holidays, and that the silver lining in all this is there would be a drastic cut in greenhouse gas emissions and leading to a Diminishment in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So here's two recent stories in Washington Post and New York Times. Washington Post story economies worldwide nearly ground to a halt over the 15 months of the coronavirus pandemic, leading to a startling drop in global greenhouse gas emissions. But the idle planes, boarded up stores, and quiet highways barely made a dent in the steady accumulation of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere according to scientists uh, from the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, saying that the greenhouse gas, imu- that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere had reached the highest levels since accurate measurements began 63 years ago. So there we had, you know, a drastic cut in our use of fossil fuels because of COVID, and it didn't do anything in terms of diminishing Carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and when you read that, you wonder, like, what good is any of this going to do when you see statistics like that?
2: Well, I will just point out that you know the a molecule of carbon dioxide lasts in the atmosphere for you know many years. It doesn't it doesn't decay overnight. So even a year of uh, or two years of a pandemic where people aren't emitting the same amount of tailpipe emissions is not enough necessarily, because we're still adding, we're still adding those, what tailpipe emissions there are. And the uh, the carbon dioxide molecules that are in the atmosphere are not going away. They're not, you know, going anywhere. So essentially the Keeling curve, which measures the the uh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, continues to rise. So there's that. As to your larger point of of the difficulty of trying to reverse the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Well, I think that at COP, you saw people talking about, you know, really trying to diminish the amount that was being added. It wasn't so much the reversal of that, though, you know, people like John Kerry are looking for technological breakthroughs with carbon capture, with all sorts of things like that. That's another reason that the deforestation Issue is so important because deforestation or reforestation does have the potential to suck carbon from the atmosphere or to keep it at the current level. So, you know, look, when you go to a, a conference like that, you have thousands of people who are there who all believe that this is a huge problem. You know, that's the thing that really strikes you. They're all on board with the idea that, oh my, you know, this is something that really threatens humanity, threatens life on Earth, and we have to do something. The question of what to do and how to do it, as Ben was just pointing out, is is a, a very vexing one, and and it's a little more difficult.
1: Let me um, ask Ben this, because Ben, you, in the, your last answer, you used the term adaptation, and um, we've largely been focused on mitigation, you know, keeping temperature down below that, you know, 1.5 Celsius and limiting emissions, greenhouse emissions. Um, But climate change is here, right? And we've been seeing over the last year, two years, uh, you know, cyclones and wildfires and floods uh, and droughts. um, And it's having a huge impact all over the world, including in this country. So what needs, what is being done, what can be done and what must be done on the adaptation side adaptation to the
4: effects of climate change that've already happened and the effects that are already certain to happen in the next few decades based on what we've already emitted or will emit in the next few years even if even if we took really aggressive action to limit future emissions is a big big task and you know it has so if you think about the effects of climate change there are you know a few major categories that places will have to prepare for or adjust to. The you know first most obvious one is hotter average temperatures means more extreme heat waves. And we saw for example, in the uh, Northwest in June the heat dome that you would like 116 degrees or something for a couple of days in like Oregon and Washington. And if these are areas that are not usually that extreme in their heat, and so you have a lot of people without air conditioning. I mean, of course, in everywhere you have people without air conditioning if they can't afford it, but you know, especially in the Pacific Northwest, compared to let's say the South, tons of people who died from extreme heat. So you have to have plans in place to make sure that everyone in places where there's gonna be extreme heat waves can get to a cooler environment. You you know, they have cooling centers, you know, particularly for seniors who are especially vulnerable to heat. You have to prepare infrastructure for heat waves. You know, in other words, like things can melt in heat and so forth. A major effect of extreme heat and drought, well, drought in and of itself, you have famine, you have wildfires that come from extreme heat and drought. So that's a thing where you have to prepare for Make sure that wildfires are less likely to burn down houses and kill people, um, which there's a whole different set of policies that you need to put in place. Sea level rise is a big one here in New York, for example, since Hurricane Sandy, New York City and agencies like the Metropolitan Transit Authority have been putting money into preparing the infrastructure for the next Hurricane Sandy because you have higher sea level rise and more intense storms, and so you're going to see more inundation. That means everything from a project that's uh, now getting started on the Lower East Side of Manhattan to build out natural lands, to like wetlands, to absorb storm rain and storm surges. And these gates, they can now use to close subway stations in, in advance of a hurricane. So those kinds of investments cost billions and billions of dollars and are a heavy lift Politically, technologically, and economically, even in a rich country like the United States. And so, then when we talk about climate adaptation in the developing world, you can see why these poorer countries are desperate to get to use their leverage, right? The refusal to do more on mitigation is their leverage to get money for adaptation and loss and damage. And so, if you're India, it really makes sense to not give the US everything it wants you to do. Limiting emissions because you're a poor country, you don't have a lot of leverage against the US, right? Economically or militarily, but or anything like that. But this is one form of leverage you have, and so you're holding it out to try and get money so that you can deal with the heat, the heat, extreme heat waves in India, huge problem, droughts, floods, huge problem, sea level rise, big problem, large coastal population. So they have to deal with all these things, and they have less resources to do it.
0: Let me, uh, if I can, ask a couple of questions about the state of the science on climate change right now. As I understand it as a non-scientist, there's pretty much an overwhelming consensus that human-caused carbon emissions, uh, greenhouse gas emissions, are causing the planet to warm. But when you get into the granular details about how much time we have before sea levels are going to rise and portions of the planet will become inhabitable, and also the connection between greenhouse gas emissions and extreme weather events that we've all been obsessing about uh, for quite some time. There's a lot of conjecture, there's a lot of uncertainties, and a lot of disagreements among scientists. So, can you just walk us through what we know pretty much for sure and what we don't know about how severe the problem is at the moment and in particular that connection to those extreme weather events?
2: So, to the first question about, you know, how certain we are that greenhouse gases are causing the climate to to change and temperatures to rise? There was a a recent uh, look at all the scientific journal articles that have been published over the past five years or so. And it found that for a while, people were saying, you know, 97% of climate scientists agree that this is what's going on. That number has been now upgraded to, over the past five years, to 99.9% of all the articles agree on that. So the big picture question has gotten much, much more consensus on it. There's really you, you have to be a, a big outlier not to believe that greenhouse gases are causing climate change. There's growing confidence in the scientific community to link extreme particular distinct extreme weather event with climate change. Um, I interviewed Daniel Swain, a UCLA climate scientist who runs a blog called Weather West, and he really you know looks at what's going on in the West Coast. and um, really interesting guy. But his point is that the computer modeling has gotten so much more sophisticated and the predictions of what climate change will do to, say, extreme weather keep getting borne out again and again and again. And they've really raised the confidence among clim- among many climate scientists, I won't say all, but many climate scientists, about linking these extreme weather events with climate change. One example just in terms of the inundating rains that we've been seeing, you know, particularly in the eastern part of the country, but you know, last week in the Pacific Northwest as well, is that for each degree of Celsius temperature rise, there is 7% more moisture added to the atmosphere. That atmospheric moisture has a trigger that, you know, it could could be in the form of the jet stream moving in a certain way, you know, what have you. Uh, uh, and then that torrent of moisture gets unleashed. So, you know, the climate scientists that we've been talking to are very, very certain that you know, when you keep adding more and more moisture, you're going to see more and more extreme downpours in the future. And so that's, you know, that's one example of something that they're, they're much more certain of.
1: So we are having this conversation on Friday, and earlier this morning, the House passed the um, Biden administration's budget bill known as Build Back Better, A massive spending bill that includes, I think, $550 billion for climate. I think it's, uh, I've seen estimates, Ben, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but something like 10 times more than we've ever spent in one single piece of legislation to combat climate change. It still has to go to the Senate. And it's not at all a sure thing that it will remain intact. But this is potentially uh, historic in terms of the efforts to deal with this issue. Tell us about what's in the bill and uh, what, how important it is, what difference it it could make um, over time. Sure. So the bill contains hundreds of billions of
4: dollars for uh, subsidizing the transition from fossil fuels to cleaner sources of energy. The two main ways it does that are tax incentives for renewable energy production. So in other words, if you wanna put a solar panel on your roof, there's tax credits for that, but also for the actual like manufacturing of um, solar and wind. And there's um, tax credits for buying electric vehicles. There's some smaller bore programs to combat climate change in there as well. There's something called the Climate Conservation Corps where young people would like be hired to work on things like wetlands restoration and tree planting and you know bolstering carbon sinks, like David was talking about before with reforestation. Also some of some of the money is for adaptation. Again, like wetlands restoration, you know is, is good for dealing with sea level rise and more, more powerful storms. The parts of the bill, that the most controversial part that is still in it is a fee for methane leakage. Oil and gas, there's been a big increase in uh, methane emissions in the US because of the fracking boom. When you drill for oil and gas, methane can come out and oil and gas wells and uh, pipelines, studies have shown them to be, to be very leaky uh, in terms of letting methane out. And so this would um, put a fee on leaking methane to get companies to clamp down on that.
1: And let me guess, Joe Manchin is against a fee <laughs> yes. for methane. Uh,
4: <laughs> Manchin ding, ding, is against ding, ding. Meth- ding.
2: <laughs> yeah.
4: <laughs> As you would expect, Joe Manchin is against the methane fee, the American Petroleum Institute is against the methane fee, and- What's, what's their argument? Kind of what's the, what's
0: the American Petroleum Institute's argument?
4: Sure, sure. It's the lobby for the oil industry. Right. And so that's just um, I, I point to them not because they have a ton of influence over Democrats in general, um, but that's indicative of the fact that the fossil fuel industry is against uh, the methane fee and some Democrats from certain states that have oil and gas like we think of you know, West Virginia with Mansion as being about coal, but it's also um, since the fracking boom, there's also a lot of natural gas coming out of West Virginia. So that's one thing that might get asked in the Senate. Uh, but, some of the but other... what,
0: what is their what is their argument against the
4: methane leakage fee? They say that they're okay with the regulations on it, but they don't think a fee is fair. They just I I, I don't know that they have a an argument beyond like wow
1: well, we don't want to pay money you know. Well, it seems like <laughs> uh, it, it, it seems like it's easier to get carrots past yeah sticks. Because exactly right. Because as I recall in the original Democratic proposal, there was also something called the uh, well I can't remember what it was Clean called. Electri- uh,
4: Clean electricity performance program. That was the so that was the was was the closest thing to the gold standard environmental experts will tell you of the way to combat climate change is to charge people, corporations, whatever For producing carbon emissions, right? And then let the economy sort out how you make the transition away from that. That's the most efficient and effective way of reducing emissions. Carbon tax can't get the votes passed, right? Cap and trade can't get it done. The Clean Electricity Performance Program was the closest thing you could get to that, it seemed, where you would provide rewards for utilities that uh, switched faster than a certain benchmark from fossil fuels to renewables and penalties like fees for electric utilities that were too slow in doing that. And Manchin, they, they cut it because of opposition
1: from Manchin. Can you get to the same place with no. tax credits? <laughs> no, you can't get to the same
4: place with tax credits. But in fact, there was this question for a moment when they asked it, can you get to the 50% reduction in emissions by 2030 that Biden promised in Glasgow? And- The answer is, with the Clean Electricity Performance Program, yes. Without it, maybe. And what they did is they amped up the tax credits a little, and they also introduced for the first time a plan to subsidize industrial processes, reducing their emissions. So in other words, when you make things like cement or steel, it requires very high heat. um, It's very energy intensive. And it produces a lot of emissions. And so now they're going to try to work on that as well. And the hope is you can maybe, if things go right, hit that 50% if, if the bill passes in its current form. So speaking
0: of tax credits, another provision in there, as I understand it, is a tax credit for buying electric cars. Yeah. Right. Which, among other critiques people have made, is this is primarily a tax credit for pretty well off people i think the lowest cost electric car you could get is what 50,000 and then it goes up from there they've structured it in such a way so it, the electric car has to be built by a union shop so <laughs> that's a benefit for you know a boon for general motors yeah. and ford but not for toyota cuz they're not unionized in their cars that they uh, produce here how much do we get for the climate from uh, giving a tax credit for rich people to buy electric cars, especially when there's also a lot of energy that goes into producing the you know, computer chips and other materials you need for an electric car. Count me skeptical, but uh, convince me I shouldn't be.
2: In the short term, you're right, but it's worth keeping in mind that the big three automakers have pledged to stop building gasoline cars by 2035. So in fairly short order, we won't have you know new gasoline cars being sold in America.
0: What's going to happen to all the gas stations?
2: Well, that's, that's, that's an interesting question. <laughs> they to become charging stations. They're going to become charging stations. They're going to be, become converted. That's a lo- another when long-term problem. When you stop on problem. the
0: New Jersey Turnpike, will you have to let the guys at the gas station charge your car instead of <laughs> doing it yourself?
2: That may be true in Oregon, where they have a law that you have to let people fill up your car for you. You can't... There's no self-service in Oregon, for instance. Yeah.
1: Okay. yeah well, look. Jersey. Jersey. Right. As okay. you say, the the, the big auto uh, manufacturers, they, they see the writing on the wall. They've seen it for a long time. They know where this is going. Hertz is buying 100,000 Teslas. Right. Uh, you know, so that that's where this is, is going. But um, So this is great bottom, for Elon Musk. It is good for Elon Musk, but... Prices are coming down. Yeah, but bottom line, Ben is, and putting aside whether the Build Back, if Build Back Better passes, you know, gets through the Senate, how much of the climate piece of the legislation is going to remain? I mean, is it still going to be, as Joe Biden would say, a big, a big fucking deal, <laughs> or, or, or might it get seriously diluted and watered down? You know, everyone wants
4: to know what Joe Manchin is going to do. And if you talk to Democrats in in the House and in the Senate, as we did, for example, in Glasgow, a number of them came over. They all express all this confidence that Manchin will vote for the current bill, uh, that he's, he's already gotten a bunch of concessions. Dick Durbin, who's the number two Senate Democrat, is the one person who, when I asked, said, I don't know. Whether Manchin's going to support it, <laughs> so I really don't know. What I would guess is that the methane fee—I'd be very surprised if the methane fee stays in there. And Mansion has raised questions about the electric vehicles. I think maybe Mike, uh, maybe maybe t- for some of the same reasons you you brought up, although I'm I'm not sure his reasons. But those may so some of those may fall out. The question of will it still be a big deal if you know if it passes with the current you know several hundred billion in clean energy production tax incentives i would say that's a pretty big deal you know
2: the way the way i look at it too though is is no matter what happens this will be the largest amount of money the united states has ever spent and committed to fighting climate change just like this year's cop was the biggest you know investment by the world's nations to combat climate change right so we're we're moving in a certain direction. Are we moving fast enough for it to matter to, you know, to avert the 1.5 degrees Celsius threshold? Probably not, but, you know,
4: not a binary, but it's worth it. But it's worth this point. People have to bear in mind this point. If we miss 1.5, it's not a binary. We, we succeeded or failed 1.8 degrees or 2.1 degrees Celsius is much better than or less bad than 2.7
1: uh, or three degrees Celsius. So
4: it if the world makes a lot of progress and and makes climate change less bad, that'll be well less that's bad. what
1: right <laughs> Well that's and, and that is the only thing we can do right. at this point, right? Climate change is here. We need to make it less bad um, and you know mitigate and and adapt. So anyway, you guys are really great to talk to about this subject. You're so knowledgeable and you know you report. so we're really grateful to have your expertise on the podcast and we you will be... report
0: we decide yeah yeah,
1: yeah that's right, right. Uh, okay. so we'll uh, as we long will as certainly... you don't deride <laughs> right. so come back while there's still a planet thank you